0: Well, hi, guys. Welcome to another episode of the Allison Interviews podcast. My guest on this episode is Roz Weston. Roz is a veteran television journalist. He was a host on Entertainment Tonight Canada, otherwise known as ET Canada, which, by the way, Big shout out to ET Canada because they've played so many episodes from my podcast and they always give me coverage and that was actually one of the reasons why I was actually really excited to speak to Roz. But what I didn't know about him until I read his book, A Little Bit Broken, a memoir, which is a fantastic read. I have to tell you, I usually... When I get into a book, I either will read the book or I'll listen to the book on Audible. With Roz's book, and again, it's titled A Little Bit Broken, and I actually read the entire book and then I listened to the entire book on Audible because he is a fantastic storyteller but what i found really interesting about Ross weston's story is that he did et canada for 17 years he was one of the biggest television personalities in entertainment news television for almost two decades while living with tourette syndrome and i really love i am a sucker for an underdog story and One of the reasons why I think is because I am an underdog story. I have been living with anxiety and panic disorder on and off since childhood. Um, If you've read my book, Journaling Fame, you know my story and I kind of go along from the time I was about eight years old up until present day in my forties and building my journalism career while also dealing intermittently with anxiety, with some OCD, with panic attacks. It's no fun. It really makes everything so much more challenging. The way I described it to Roz during the episode, and you'll hear it, is I said, you know what, like we are really kindred spirits. I can really relate to you because you went through two decades as a entertainment news journalist with Tourette's syndrome, and he would actually have to hold in his tics. Anybody who lives with Tourette's will will understand this. He would have to hold in his tics while he was on camera. And as soon as the camera panned away from him, he would have to let his tics out in some creative way to kind of keep it under wraps while he was interviewing some of the the most famous celebrities on the planet, and that's no small feat, and I can relate because I have done some of the biggest interviews of my career, believe it or not, while I was in the throes of having panic attacks, anxiety, OCD, I mean, you name it, and the way I described it to him was, I said, I know what it feels like to get in the ring with one arm tied behind your back. And you really have to put forth twice as much energy as everybody else. But at the same time, what's really interesting about having, whether it's a mental health challenge, whether it's a physical health challenge, is that you go into a zone when you are doing what you love, if you're fortunate enough to do something that you love for work. Or even for a hobby, for that matter. You go into a zone where everything goes away. You're in this frequency, this magic frequency, where none of the shit can touch you. And you may be suffering before you you get on. And you may be suffering after you are finished. But while you are in that zone, it's like you're in this magic bubble. And you're just doing what you love. And it's all hands on deck. And everything is going great. And I think that in that is a very special lesson for all of us. And Tony Robbins actually speaks about this, that everything comes down to the state that you are in. So you could be the same exact person in one mental state or physical state, and you're the same exact person in another physical or mental state, and your performance or your attitude or your personality or whatever you're bringing into that room could be completely different, and yet you're the same person. So there's a wonderful lesson to be had there. And I think you'll really enjoy my conversation with Raz. If you are Canadian, of course, you've seen him on television and heard him on the radio for many many, many years. He also has a nationally syndicated radio morning show called The Roz and Mocha Show in Canada, but you've got to pick up this book. It's a little bit broken, a memoir by Roz Weston. So sit back, relax, and listen to this really cool conversation with me and Roz. So in reading your book, I have to say that there are a lot of parallels that I found between your life and my life. And I'll explain. So you did 17 years of ET Canada with Tourette's syndrome. And I have done, I started as a print journalist and now I do more podcast and on-camera stuff. But for the last X amount of years, I have had to do interviews while having anxiety and panic attacks. Right. So I can relate. To the idea of having to like get in the ring with one arm tied behind your back, if that makes any
1: sense yeah, yeah okay. makes perfect sense yeah <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh yeah, going that long um and it was it was interesting because I wasn't I, I had always had I had always had ticks. My whole life and then i wasn't di- like officially diagnosed until i guess later when it comes to something like Tourette's i was in my early early 20s when i was uh, when i was diagnosed um and it to me it just sort of explained Uh, something that was a mystery my whole life, which is, I didn't know what it was. My brother noticed it. I noticed it. Um, Mm -hmm. but it was never, it was never sort of like debilitating. It was often embarrassing, or at least I thought I was embarrassed by it. And so I just learned to mask them and, and, and hide them in every sort of situation. Um, and it, it came down to my just not wanting to be fussed over. That's why I didn't say anything to anyone. It's not like anybody would have really cared, but I just never wanted to really be fussed over. And I never, I never wanted somebody to, I never wanted to be the reason that something went wrong, or I never wanted somebody to, to notice something.
0: Were you like the low maintenance kid in your house, where you wanted to fly under the radar or not stress your parents or or anything like that.
1: I mean, I didn't, uh, I mean, I stressed my parents. Uh, I didn't (laughs) deliberately want to stress my parents, but uh, I I stressed my parents. Uh, But I, uh, but other than that, like I was, I I would say that I was a, I was a good kid. I just grew up way too fast. And I think that that was sort of a a big part of, you know, my journey into how I did not handle things all that well as I started to, to become an adult, but yeah, but dealing with Tourette's and and it's interesting, like when, you know, when you're on television, there's a lot of stuff you can do um, that people allow you to do just because people in TV are generally sort of vain or very image conscious, which is, you know, one thing I always had was I always asked to have a monitor put right beside whatever camera I was, I was reading. And, and in TV world, that just made it seem like I always just wanted to see if my hair was okay or if I, whatever it was. But what I did was I always use that monitor. I could see it out of my sort of peripheral. And I always used that monitor because that monitor was the live feed. And so I always knew when I wasn't on camera. And that's why that monitor was there. And as soon as I saw that I wasn't on camera, I would, I would let out ticks. Quietly and 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 sort of right. like I would figure out a way to to sort of like look at I would I would squint my eyes a lot you know I, I I do have bad eyes but people thought that my eyes were way worse than what they were because I would squint a lot to look like I was reading the teleprompter getting ready to read the teleprompter but I found that if I squinted I could do this a couple of times and I could let out a few ticks right so I masked them the whole time I was on television and nobody and nobody knew so for 17 years it was you know it was just something that I dealt with and then when I wrote the book and I talked about it and I did this video on TikTok and everything else where I'm like oh my god. I'm going to f- be, f- I'm going to be free to sort of like just tick away and <laughs> because I, because I had hit them for so long. Uh, The exact opposite happened, which is I still hide them and I still treat it the exact same way and I don't feel like I'm free to do it and I'm still sort of embarrassed by them. And, you know, when I wrote the book, I put that in there and I made it a huge part of the book. And yet Mm -hmm. in the vast majority of interviews that I've done, people still don't bring it up because they don't want to feel awkward talking about it or they don't think that maybe I might be awkward, you know, talking about it kind of thing. And so I still feel that way about them even after going through everything and writing the book.
0: So you would be, you wouldn't be on camera, but you're interviewing a celebrity, you know, you're not on camera at the moment. So you're, you're relieving yourself and you're letting the ticks out. But I'm sure the person you're interviewing is watching you do this. I mean, did you get any kind of reaction from anybody that you would be interviewing?
1: No, no, because like, let's just, you know, let's say that, you, you know, you and I are, you and I are talking kind of thing. And if I'm listening, I could easily, you know, do, I could easily just sit like this. And if if I'm having a jaw tick or whatever it was, right. Or there's, you know, I, I. the one thing that I did more than more than anything is I would always like sort of look really like intently or really surprised or I would, you know, overly laugh because I found that if I stretched my eyes out for that one sort of split second, I could, you know, get uh, get a few eye ticks in. So no, nobody ever noticed. And if they did, if they did that, nobody ever, nobody ever said anything. It's I, what I find is that people, once you tell them what it is, that's when they notice all the time. Right. But, um, but people, you know, generally, you know, it's, it's, it's an, it's an awkward situation for somebody to go, what did you just do? Right. You right. Know, like I, you know, who says that kind of thing? Right. Although well, you're not going to say, might...
0: what did you just do? But you might be like, are you okay?
1: Yes. You know, is
0: everything okay? Something like that. So that never happened.
1: Never. Not once. Wow.
0: No. Nope, so, once. And you're a trooper because even like in, in reading the book, so many different, there were other health challenges. There were other things that you experienced where you didn't call in sick. You, you never made excuses, like never explain, never complain. That's your personality.
1: Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, I, I didn't, um, You know, my sort of I had built my my self-worth for a lot of years on and I thought that, you know, my greatest attributes were how much I could handle without people knowing. Right. Without people being able to tell that I was in hell or I was grieving or I was, you know, going through anything mental health related or or in in the, the, my younger years when I was addicted to opioids and didn't even know it. um, You know, my sort of thing was that that was that's what I wore as a as a as a badge of honor was that I could go through all of this stuff and still outwork people, um, which was completely unhealthy, but. You know, like I said, you know, the way that I handled most of those things in my life was, was, was not the easiest way or the most healthy way of handling it, but nothing I ever did in my life was the healthiest way of doing anything.
0: Right. Well, how do you, how do you handle it now? I mean, what does mental health mean to you now at this stage?
1: Uh, Yeah, I I think for me, and it's interesting because I'm sort of like late to the game when it comes to things like mental health, because when I was younger, I was I was. I was, I was grown before I even heard those two words put together like that mental health. it just wasn't discussed. It wasn't
0: a thing. Yeah,
1: it wasn't. It wasn't a thing. You were just, you were just messed up. Like that's just sort of all it was. And it didn't mean that people weren't compassionate or didn't have empathy or didn't want to offer help. But if they did offer help, it's just because they thought you were messed up, you know, like that's just the way that the, that's just the way that the world was. Uh, But for me now, you know, I always had a success is subjective, you know, for, for people and for me my my version of success and where i wanted to get to was that i needed to be in a position of where i could confidently tell somebody no and have it be respected because for a lot of years i think that that was the fight was to just put myself in a position of where i could say no to things and then i also wanted to be in a world where the people i worked for needed to know. Where they stood in my world, and not just where I stood in their world, and to, so work-wise, that was the level that I knew I needed to to get, in, and I needed to to, to 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 sort of work that path. Um, but I, I, you know, went through everything. I went through, you know, imposter syndrome and, and and all and all of this stuff. And I and I I would take every opportunity I was given, great opportunities, whether I deserved them or not. And I know, and I knew at the time, the only way that I was, that this would, you know, all go to hell as if I screwed it all up and then I'd be given these incredible opportunities. And then I would do my best to screw it all up just because I was self-destructive. And I went through so many years, just not feeling sort of, you know, worthy or smart enough or whatever it was. And I would just, you know, put myself in these positions to kind of go down in a, in in these blazes of glory. And, um, and, and, you know, like yourself, you know, I would go through, you know, I would have these anxiety attacks and panic attacks. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what they were. I was just paralyzed and wouldn't leave the house, but I had no idea what I was, what I was dealing with. And then years later, you figure it all out and you, you learn to, you know, manage those moments as best you can, I think.
0: Okay. And why did you name your memoir a little bit broken? Like, why did you choose the title? What does that mean to you?
1: Um, it was, it was sort of related back to a story about my, my dad. There's a, there's a, a lot of the book is, is sort of my story and my relationship with my dad, who I lost when I was in my, um, in my twenties. And his really? whole thing was, is that, um, everything got a second chance, right? He was, he would fix things and it wouldn't be perfect, but it would work again. And everything got a, everything got a second chance. And, and, and I had been obsessing about that. You know, we're looking at life and how we look at mental health and how we look at individuals. And I'd started to really, really think about the fact that, you know, we don't fix things anymore. We replace them, um, whether it's our friends or our phones. And we're we're now a, we're now a people in a time where we don't tinker and we don't fix. And for me, the fixing is always the terrifying part. We can take it apart. If I put you in a garage with Mm -hmm. a bus engine and I said somewhere in that engine is a dime, here's all the tools you will need to take that engine apart, find the dime. I guarantee you, you would figure it out. You would take the entire thing apart. And then if I walked in afterwards and I said, cool, now put it back together. That's the terrifying part. Right? right we can take it all apart we can pull ourselves apart and we can analyze and we can look and we can figure out and see and find what's wrong but it's the rebuilding afterwards I think that was terrifying to me anyway and why I waited so long to do so much of the work that I that I needed to do because it wasn't about pulling it apart I knew I could pull myself apart but I didn't know if I I didn't know if I would be able to rebuild afterwards Wow so that's where a little bit that's where that's that's where a little bit broken came from I wasn't okay. ruined. You know, I wasn't ruined. I was just a little bit broken.
0: Right. Like we all are.
1: Like we all and, are.
0: And by the way, I love your dad from reading the book. There oh. was a, <laughs> there was something about the way you described your dad. And I love the story about how every Christmas he would get new slippers and he would walk around in them and make it sound like they were just the greatest thing yeah. in the world. Like it just, yeah. it just touched my heart. It, it really did. Yeah.
1: And, and that's what a lot of this was too. Is you know, I started to think about legacy when I when I wrote the book, and, and you know, and for me and for you, it's it's different. You know, I have hundreds and thousands of of hours of you know video and podcasts and everything that will live on and live on um, but when my dad died there was sort of no permanent record of him like i don't have any video of my of my dad and i yeah. realized that that his identity and his legacy and his stories you know, we're my brother and I are his sort of his storytellers and we're the we're the ones that are that are sort of continuing and keeping him alive. But when I go, so does he. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to write a book was because I I, I, I thought that there should be some sort of permanent record um, about uh, about my dad.
0: That is that is so beautiful. I love that. And also, you have another personality trait that I can greatly relate to. You're not comfortable with rules and authority. From what nice. I, from what I gather. Okay. So for, for what I first want to ask you is how did you do. So you, you worked for ET Canada for 17 years. I would think that you'd have to have some sort of, uh, you'd have to be amiable to some kind of corporate structure, right? In order to make that work for 17 years. H- how did you make that work with your personality?
1: Uh, to be honest with you i was when they built that show i was the third person hired for it and um they hired me because of the sort of what i had could get out of people in in interviews they liked my interview mm-hmm. style and at the beginning it was very disruptive when we started the show we were very disruptive and it was before you know, I, I think maybe I don't even think Perez Hilton was around then, but it was certainly way before social media. I think TMZ was just starting, or they were still. Harvey Levin was still part of of, of something else. Um, so it was a very disruptive culture, and we mm-hmm. were hard on people, and we were very invasive and very gossipy and and and, and intrusive. And I got very good at doing those interviews. Um, I didn't love doing them. Right. You know, it, it, I didn't find it. I didn't find it. It wasn't, certainly wasn't nice. And a lot of them now come back to haunt me, um, which I'm okay with. Um, But we, so my style fit perfectly into that. So when we started this show, there weren't many rules and we were rule breakers and we were disruptors, even though we were under the ET brand, we were a much different show in tone when we, when we started. And so, through my history there, I never had any reins when I was when I was on that show. Nobody really ever gave me direction. I would ask, give me the three things, give me the thing you need, the thing you want, and and one sort of dream out of this interview. And a right. producer would tell me three things, I would get those, but everything else was up to me. And everything else was always up to me. Um tone wise, they would say, Hey, thematically, can you do this? Can you do this? And I would be like, yeah, but I was very collaborative with people. I love a collaboration. I love working with producers. I love working with directors, but I never had rules.
0: Right. And rules are tough because for me, rules are fine. If they make sense to me, I -hmm. don't like following rules. If they don't make sense to me. Which is sort of like, I mean, I guess you could say it's like a Donald Trump school of thought. It's like, if I agree with this rule, I'll follow it. If I don't, I won't. But that's always how I've been. Um, Because to me, if something doesn't make sense, or I think that somebody's getting in their own way or getting in my way, and it's going to hurt the overall picture, I can't bring myself to follow that rule.
1: Yeah, of course. But I think that maybe I think that we should be that way, though, I, I, I because the one thing I certainly I'm not a fan of is rules for the sake of rules. Yes. You know, and and I'm not, you know, I don't really subscribe, you know, to it's just like meetings, you know, I don't want to ever want to go to a meeting for the sake of having a meeting just because it's scheduled, you know, every Tuesday at, you know, 3 p.m. for eternity. I I don't I never understood that. I've only ever wanted to be you know, doing interviews. Like I never watched ET Canada. Like I've never had a desire to see the show or see myself on the show.
0: You never watched yourself. Okay. I,
1: I, I started doing ET Canada in 2005. And I think the last time I saw an episode of ET Canada was 2007 and I left in 2022. Why'd you leave? Um, it was one it was it was time and two I had the book coming out and and I needed to give it my all because I just spent so much time with it writing it that I I knew I could write a book and work two full time jobs but I couldn't I couldn't launch the book with with two full time jobs because I get up at three thirty in the morning every day and I go and do a radio show for five hours and right. then I would leave that and then I would leave that show and go and do ET Canada all day until five thirty and get home at six thirty every night and it was a grind and it's been that way um, so th- there, there's that which is I just really wanted to to launch the book in the right way but also you know there's there's life stuff which is you know my kid is thirteen and I realized I've never I've never taken my kid to school. Right. And, really? and I've no. And, I, and I've picked my kid up from school. I think in, you know, she's grade seven now. I think I've picked my kid up from school maybe a dozen times just because my life wouldn't allow for it. And And so there's so much of you know i worked so hard to just make sure that you know my my family is good and and my kid is good and you know we have you know a great place to live and we're happy um but my fear started to become that my my doing all of this out of love that one day my kid was going to wake up and feel like she got ripped off Right. Okay, And, and I would tell Catherine, my, my now fiance that, you know, I would always tell her, this is my last year at ET. This is my last year at ET. And, you know, then should be over the moon, happy for me because I was finally going to get to rest. And then two months later, she would hear me in the office on the phone with my lawyer renegotiating a new contract. Got it. She She's like, okay, here we go again. And I'm like, no, this <laughs> one's just one year. It's just one year. So it was a difficult thing to let, it was a difficult thing to let go of because the one thing that I always feared was just time on my hands, right? I, I, I'm, I'm a much better person when I am busy. I don't historically do well when I have a lot of time on my hands. We took it all.
0: Okay, so now that you're in a new chapter, are you doing well?
1: How are you doing? Yeah, I I mean, I'm I'm doing yeah, I'm doing I'm doing great. I uh I still sort of feel lost some days because I I you know I only having one full-time job is just does never feels enough for me, which wow. is weird. And and, I, and yeah. I'm sure I'll get, I'm sure I'll get over that. Um, but you know, you do something for almost 20 years and you have a schedule for almost 20 years and it's, it's shocking when, when it's cut in half, even though that's the normal amount of work that a person should be. Doing. <laughs> a
0: normal right? human
1: being does. <laughs> it's like a normal human being should be, you know, especially one that wakes up at three 30 in the morning, every single day. Like there's a normal amu- amount of work, uh, but I always just put more on my Myself, but I, my my thing is that I used to chase opportunity and I would make sure that I was damn ready for it when it when mm-hmm. it came. And then I, I sort of peeked out at opportunity and then my philosophy changed, which is I no longer chase opportunity. I chase creativity. And it's about getting an idea out of my head and into the world and, and, and making something that tastes good or making something that sounds good or, you know, um, just getting something into the, into the world through creativity. And so now I find that that's what I have time to do is I have a lot more time to sort of, you know, be creative, which I'm, I'm, I'm learning to relax and be creative as opposed to be, be, be you know, being creative for, for work, you know, I'm, I'm sort of taking yeah. some time for myself.
0: I think that that's a, oh, well, how old are you?
1: 38, sorry, 48.
0: Forty-eight. I'm forty-eight as well, and I have a thirteen-year. I have a thirteen-year-old as well, so we're like in in the same stage. But I I feel like you chase opportunity in in your younger years because you feel like that's what validates you. That's what makes you feel like somebody makes you feel important. And then it's it's like a sign of maturity that when you start to chase creativity and instead it's it's a it's a definite shift spiritually that happens at this stage of life.
1: It is. And it's kind of glorious when it, when it happens, you know, I get so much joy now. And, and one of the, what the, 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 the sort of point for me when, when I knew that I was changing as a, when I knew I was changing as a person was I was so fiercely competitive for so many years and jealous and just broken that I couldn't be happy for anyone else's success. Even if I didn't know them, like if I, if I went to work and I heard somebody at work talking about how their husband, who I don't know, who maybe works at a bank, just got a promotion at the bank who I've never met, never been, I would be seething mad all day. And I would be mad because of the idea that there was somebody out there in the world who was working harder than I was, who was getting advanced before I was. I I was so incredibly competitive and jealous. And when it all started to change for me is when I got to a point in my own life and in my own career where I could celebrate my friends' achievements. And now I'm the biggest you know, yeah. super fan of when my friends and people I know and people I love um, do well. I'm so, I'm like so over the moon, and I'm so encouraging, and I'm I'm the now whatever you need friend, right? That's sort of yeah. that's sort of me now. But I but most of my life, I I went through this this thing where I just I couldn't be happy for anyone.
0: I find I that I still miserable. I still struggle with that sometimes. I still struggle with, but it it's typically and this is terrible, but if, if I have something and somebody gets that same thing that I have, I'm so happy for them. If there's something I want and somebody else gets it first, that's a struggle, man. Like that is a struggle. And I'll be like, Oh, that's so great. You know, but inside it's, it's, it's not easy because you want, you want to, you wanted to reach that milestone first. It's an ego thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which, and, 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 I, I, I went through that as I went through that as well, which, you know, um, and I, I know I don't have that anymore. I That's really awesome. like, You're I, my I hero. really don't, yeah. <laughs> I really don't have that anymore. And when I say that I was bad before, like, yeah. you know, I was, it was awful before, like I, wow. it was, it was so difficult to deal with, but no, I don't, I don't have that. Even if I do, even if somebody does the same thing as me and then they, you know, Um, sort of, you know, move past me in the, in the, in the world, you know, that's great for them you know it's 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 awesome because i hope that you know they can then you know sort of come around and help the people who are behind that because that's sort of what i do now you know i yeah. i i love giving advice you know to people and i love you know working with people and if anybody ever wants to meet with me and ask me sort of career advice or on radio or now how to write a bloody book which you know which i had never done before um and and that's the other thing too is that i i'm great at giving advice but i'm shit at taking it and i went into this book having never written a book before but I didn't even tell anybody I was writing this book. Like I didn't tell my mother, I didn't tell my brother, I didn't tell anybody that I worked with that I was writing this book. I spent almost 2 years writing it and nobody knew.
0: Did you do it yourself or did you work with um a ghostwriter?
1: No, I I worked with a woman who was incredible. I'm not used to working with um somebody who is going to write in your voice, right? It's it's very difficult for me. But the relationship having worked in TV and radio for as long as I have, um I fully understand the relationship between working with a producer. And so I met this woman who was an incredible writer, editor, and sort of story builder. And she worked with me. So I would write, 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 write. And then um and then I would once every couple of weeks just sort of sit with her and go through everything. And then we would, you know, just build stories like you would with a producer. Like, let's take this ending and move it to the front and let's take this part and maybe move that, you know, to the back. And so she was just story build with me, which was, which was really great. Um, but no, I couldn't, I couldn't have done this if I worked with a, a, like a full on ghost where I sat down and they just wrote in my voice and, and wrote my story. It just, it, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it. And maybe that's why it took me so bloody long to write this thing. I probably Mm -hmm. could have had it out faster, um, but I couldn't have, I couldn't, I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been me. And I, and I, and I understand fully, you know, this is how most people do their books when they're in, you know, the position that I'm in, but it just wasn't Mm -hmm.
0: for me. I like that. And when you were working at ET, who was was there who was the the celebrity you interviewed who you connected with the most on a personal level where you actually felt a genuine connection during the interview
1: um jeez i mean there was there was a few i never went into interviews hoping to make that sort of you know genuine connection because um oftentimes the interviews that looked best on television were ones that were very superficial right Un- unless you're making somebody cry or or and when I say superficial, I don't mean shallow, right? When I right. say superficial, I mean, you know, there, when you sit down and do a junket interview where you go to a mm-hmm. hotel and there's a movie and you get four minutes, there's a, there's a game that happens, you know, that needs to go on. And that is, I'm going to sit in a chair in front of you and I don't know you and you don't know me, but for four minutes, we have to act like we're best friends. Yes. And you're going to give me something you didn't give to the guy before me. I'm going to laugh at one of your jokes. So I'm going to prop you up. And at the end of it, we're going to have a great laugh, right? It's this sort of superficial dynamic that needs it's to just, happen, but, it, okay. but it's far from real, right? It is far from a real connection.
0: It's not all a, a long form interview. It's it's, it's, it's not. There a lot right. of just
1: so short, right? And so yeah. what I found was that a lot of the issues. Inter- interviews that worked the best on television were the ones where that superficial sort of dynamic was the best. Right. And you don't get a great feeling after those interviews, but they look really great on television. You look like you were best friends, you know, and, and that sort of that, that, that was the, those were always the interviews that, that sort of worked the best. Uh, But as far as, you know, other people, you know, uh, that you, you, you connect with, even if you don't connect with them, because I don't know if you're supposed to connect with them, but it doesn't make them any less great. You know, my last year and a half when I was at ET, I interviewed Dolly Parton three or four times in a, in a year mm-hmm. and a half, and I'd never interviewed her before. They were great, and she's wonderful, and she's a legend, and I love those interviews. I don't think you're supposed to connect with Dolly Parton. You know, Dolly Parton is enigmatic. You know, you don't relate. You're not supposed to relate to Dolly Parton or see yourself in Dolly Parton. You know, Dolly Parton is a reflection of so many other things.
0: Interesting.
1: Um, So so, you know, Dolly is incredible. Um, She's really she's really great. Um, Shania Twain. I love interviewing Shania Twain. I think that she is so, you know, so fantastic. Ed uh, sorry, Steve Carell is really great. Paul Giamatti is a really great person to sit down and 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 talk to. Um, and yeah, so guys like, you know, guys like that, like I I I much prefer somebody who is, uh, you know, really either, you know, sort of like on their way down or on their way up. Those are always my favorite people to interview. I yes, never really I would agree. Interviewing somebody at the, at the height of their, at the height of their fame um, because they were just so, so guarded, right? Um, but yeah, no, like I, you know, Anne Murray, I read a lot, I have almost a, an entire chapter where I was talking about Ann Murray um, in a book because my dad was such a huge fan of Ann Murray where I never thought that I would get along with Anne Murray, but Ann Murray and I get along very, very well, and it's the weirdest thing in the world. But I love, you know, I love Anne Murray. She's a great interview, and 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 I realized, you know, years ago that the people that I, you know, may have always been a fan of or had a poster of up on my wall, you know, just because you love them, it doesn't mean that they're going to be great interviews. the The the, the great interviews for me were the people that I wasn't a fan of, you know, the people that maybe I didn't even really know too too well going into the interview. Those always seem to be the best ones.
0: Maybe because you're in a different space. When, yeah. when that's the case yeah. yeah but it's so interesting I have such a different take on it like I no matter who I interview and no matter who they are I will pull them down to a human level like even if I have to talk to them about when their dog died when they were 10 like I don't care I will pull the down-to-earth human being out of the person it's just it's just how I roll like it, it's just what I understand. I I don't understand a world where, uh, where status separates people. You you know what I mean? I I don't understand that world.
1: It's difficult though, because I, you know, I would pull people, I would do the, the, the same thing you did, which is, you know, I was always really great at reading the room and matching tone and, and all of this stuff. Um, and getting people to say things in, in interviews was always the thing that I was, you know, really, really great at, um. But social media changed for this business, right? When, when I started ET, if a star had a scandal or they had a new record or a new movie or something to pitch, a new endorsement, whatever, they needed us, right? Mm-hmm. They, there were a lot of years where I worked on that show where they needed us more than we needed them. And that was the dynamic. And that had been the dynamic in show business forever. Then social media happened and the stars suddenly had a direct line to their fans on a much bigger platform than we could ever, we could ever supply them. And so they no longer needed us. We were part of the machine and part of show business and they would still do the promotional run for their, for their movie and everything else. But the reality was, is that they didn't need us the way that they used to. And you sort Mm -hmm. of started feeling that when social media became a real thing, which is, It used to be you would sit down in an interview and if somebody was going to tell you to not ask something or they didn't want to talk about something, you knew that that was because in a couple of weeks they were going to do Oprah. And they had promised yep. Oprah, or they had yep. already taped that interview, right? Like you you knew that. And that yeah, that was just part of the game too. Oprah was sort of up here. Um, but now what you have is people don't want to talk about things in interviews because they're saving it for an Instagram live or they're saving it for some sort of big social, you know, media um tie in uh, that they have. And so it's a much different world now, right? Because absolutely you go into, you go into these interviews and um and you you don't have the same sort of uh leverage that you that you used to and and at the beginning of social media it really really it was it, the interviews were awful it was terrible to sit down with people and then everything sort of evened out again and by the time i left et um things were sort of you know back to normal again and people you know were back to being you know wonderful but everybody got a whole lot more kind once they could tell their own stories because if the scandal happened a celebrity needed at least a week to be able to 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 comment on it You know,
0: what was interesting is that even if you look at and I bring this up because it's the Netflix documentary is coming out. But even if you look at a case study like Pamela Anderson and what happened to her in the 90s, how Mm. she was really raked over the coals and she did not have the ability to tell her own story. Everything was filtered through entertainment tonight, through the tabloids, through wherever. And a lot of it was run by men. And she didn't have the ability to say, hey, wait a second, like, I'm a victim here. I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I being treated this way? And now there's there's so much power for especially women to take back the narrative and really be able to own their own story in a way that they couldn't before.
1: Yes, very much so. And and Pam is a is a great example of you know she was built in the the sort of fantasy factory and pamela's you know brand and what made her special was that she was this sort of untouchable um, you know, bombshell that was the beautiful
0: was fantasy good. object,
1: yeah, yeah, and and there and there was no other side. you know, now, like if you look at Kim Kardashian, right in in that sort of you know, in that sort of world, Kim is that bombshell fantasy, you know, otherworldly kind of thing, but she's also on Instagram, you know, fighting with her kid and everything else, right? you can do you can do both sides now, where with somebody like Pamela Anderson, there was no other side. like nobody, like she was not a person to so right. many people and because you know she was looked at as this thing that's mm-hmm. how she was treated and the problem with her was that even when people started to realize that she was a person instead of leaning into that and helping her and helping to you know get her out of that world and helping to change that perception people fought against it and they fought harder to make her not human and that well, that's sort of what show business did to did to Pamela Anderson and and you know all these years later, we can all look at it. But at the time, the people that did see what was happening to Pam Anderson and how wrong it was um, were never the loudest voices in in the. Never. Room. Pamela, Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee on the cover of your magazine was huge business, and people were not willing to give up the 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 dollars. And then there was the, the perception that you know because Pam was in Playboy that she somehow. Did this all to herself, which was the most cruel of of all of that in uh, in the, in that story. But I'm with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing um, the the documentary um, that that she did because she's never really. And even when I watched the trailer for it, I'm like, oh yeah, right. It's kind of weird to hear Pam talk, and it's kind of weird yeah. to hear Pam say, you know, the video. Like, whenever you ever heard Pamela Anderson refer to the video?
0: No, it, it was you, always you just don't. yeah, and you don't realize the trauma that somebody suffered behind the scenes, because back in those days, she had to put on a brave face and still put on sexy outfits. And when somebody would bring it up, she'd have to giggle and kind of touch their shoulder and pretend that it was no big deal when she was probably hysterical behind the scenes. And so, yeah, I, I just think that, that now what, how we we advocate for women and we're in this post me too era and we, And and we're finally listening to women, whereas before it was just it was like a running joke at somebody else's expense.
1: Yeah, you made Pamela Anderson was making too many people money. You know, she was the paycheck for a a, a lot of people and you weren't allowed to be more than that thing that made you famous the great example today of somebody who you look at 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 their position in show business where you're like god this is the way that it should be for everybody is selena gomez right Mm -hmm. selena gomez great singer and you would think in that world she is the reason a lot of people make money and selena gomez is in that lane but selena gomez can also go and do only murders in the building. And she can act and she can be seen with two of the greatest greatest comedic actors of all time. But Selena Gomez can also do the mental health documentary that she did, where years ago, if Selena Gomez, the singer, wanted to do the mental health documentary, her people would never have allowed it. Because right. That is going to ruin the paycheck from all of this. But now what you find is people want to see all the mm-hmm. different sides. And Pamela Anderson didn't have that luxury. She wasn't in a world where people wanted to see all the different sides of Pam. They only wanted to see this one. And, and you look at Selena's, you know, sort of career now in 2023. And it's it's incredible because she can be all the things. And you realize that, you know, it's it's better for her, you know, it's right. better for her.
0: To, well, it's to, better for her, but it's better for her fans. It's better for everybody. Yeah, it's better
1: for everybody. It's better. Yeah. For, you're right. It's better. It's better for everybody because now you can be, you know, Selena Gomez fan across the, you know, across the board. And, and, and she's really, as far as everybody who's famous right now, I would say Selena Gomez is the one that is sort of doing it the best.
0: And what is the best advice that you've ever received?
1: Um. I always had this thing where, you know, I would, I would always let common sense sort of stand in my way until, you know, somebody told me to, to, to kind of get out of your own head and, and don't let common sense, you know, get in your way of anything, because I was the type of person who would talk myself out of everything. Right.
0: Oh, so you were up in your head. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I I would find I would find a reason to 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 sort of get out of everything, or to to sort of you know get in my own get in my own way, just because common sense would tell me that you know this wasn't going to work out, or you know why bother, or whatever it was. And and I well,
0: who gave who gave you that advice? Who told you to get out of your own Um, way?
1: You know, my 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 dad for for a lot of it. You know, my dad was the 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 one who really you know sort of built my philosophy you know around work, which is you know, it it should never be the thing that you love or hate the most in your life, because that's what your friends and family are for. Right. Um, and work and, 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 you know, you don't have to love what you do. You just have to be really good at it. And when you have this notion that, you know, if you, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Well, you know, most people who go to work every day, don't get the, the luxury of being able to love what they do, but that doesn't mean that they're not, contributors. And that doesn't mean that they're not proud of what they do. And it doesn't mean that they're not talented. You don't have to love what you do. Um, I think that's quite arrogant actually to, to, to think that and to push that on people, but you, but you, 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 you do have to be good at it. And I think that being good at something is what we, you know, don't, Push on people because I think that we find that it puts too much pressure on kids to be good at hmm. something. You know, we 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 push the you know just do what you love, uh, right? Which is, which is which is right up there with you know you're a princess, you know kind of thing. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of it's a it's a bit it's a bit of false hope and sending you know setting them right up for, um, right for, you know for disappointment. But um, but I don't think we teach. You know, because I don't think we teach people to be, you know, to to take pride in in being good at something. I think that we we now have built the bar of, you know, you can be proud when you do something you love. I think that that's where the level is, and I think that that's dangerous for people.
0: You know what? I, I I don't know if you know who Michael Francesi is. He has a name.
1: Channel.
0: He used to be in the Colombo crime family. He has a very okay. long storied history with with the, the New York mafia but since getting out of prison he's become a motivational speaker and he has a tremendous youtube channel and he said something really interesting i was watching one of his videos he said you know when i was younger i wanted to be a baseball star but i didn't but the reality is i didn't have that level of talent i had enough talent to play baseball but not to be in the mlb So instead, I figured out what I was good at. And he's actually a great communicator. He's a great interviewer. He's a great YouTuber. He's a great motivational speaker. And he's like, hey, listen, you don't have to, just because you you have a childhood dream, but you don't have, let's say, the talent or the connections to reach that particular dream, instead of getting upset about that, ask yourself, what are my gifts? Like, what what can I bring to the Mm -hmm. world? Maybe I wasn't meant to be in the MLB, I was meant to be a motivational speaker.
1: Yeah. And, so and, it's, and yeah, it's, it's, he's, he's a hundred percent right. And I think that, um that we, we share a lot of the same philosophies, which is, you know, when, whenever somebody calls into the radio show looking for advice or they're, you know, warring with their partner or their boss or themselves, or they're in a, in a, in a down place, the, the one question that I will always, always just ask everyone is, you know, well, what are you good at? And mm-hmm. I was shocked at the amount of people who would be faced with that question that had no answer they didn't know what they were good at. They couldn't name one thing in life that they were good at. And I've just spent, you know, so many years when when I was, you know, rebuilding of just like getting good at a lot of things. You know, I just every day I'll learn something, and then I just every I spend so much time just learning now, and I just yeah. want to be good at things, right? I just I just have this desire to be good at things, and and I think it's devastating for people because they don't feel that you need to be good at something in order to to sort of get through life and to to be able to be successful. Um But when you ask them, you know, like, what are you good at? It's a pretty devastating realization for people when they, when they come back to you and say, you know, I don't know or nothing. And that sort of triggers something in them where, where it's, it's, it's life-changing at times.
0: Well, I think that maybe if people get stuck in a lane, like what I was saying before, like I'm going to be this, they don't even bother to experiment. They don't bother to nope. look into hobbies. They don't bother to read books. They don't bother to, join clubs or, or do anything else where you, because sometimes you have to discover it, it has yet to be discovered and revealed, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist.
1: No, it does exist. I can guarantee yeah. you that it does exist. They just have to find it.
0: Exactly. So what is the biggest misconception about living with Tourette's syndrome that you'd like to clear up?
1: Um, You know, what you see in movies and the sort of punchlines of jokes is, you know, it's just, you know, everybody just shouting, you know, profanities at each other or or clucking, uh, which does exist. It does exist, but that's not that's sort of not Tourette's across the across the board for people. And I think that it's oftentimes very, you know, very subtle and um, and it, it's it's not it's not always in your face. And it's like a lot of other things, which is, you know. You don't know when somebody's going through it. Like you just, and I think that we all go through these realizations where, you know, when, when we find out what somebody's, you know, dealing with or has been dealing with for years, where we all go, oh my God, I had no idea. But Tourette's can yeah. be one of those things too. And it's not uh it's it's not necessarily um what you've been led to believe, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that doesn't exist because that is incredibly difficult for the people that do.
0: Right. So there's a there's so a spectrum. Often, there's a huge it, it, yeah. there's a huge
1: spectrum. Um, oftentimes you oftentimes you grow you grow out of it. I had my my vocal tics when I was younger were nothing major at all. I would I would hum or I would repeat words that people would say or sounds that I would hear, and I never okay. really knew you know sort of what that what that was. But I grew out of my my vocal ones. But the but the the the, the face tick ones uh, just just sort of, you know, stuck with me. They're getting better as I get older for sure, Um, but they're still there.
0: You know, what's interesting is that with like, with a lot of things, it's an iceberg syndrome. So much of what's going on is under the surface of the water. Very, Mm -hmm. very, only a very small amount is above the surface and can actually be observed by the casual observer.
1: Yeah. Like a lot of things. Like, like most things, right? Like Like most things. things. Like it's, it's, it's like most things that I don't know about. Right. And there's a lot of stuff that I don't know about and and a lot of stuff that people are dealing with that I know nothing about. And I can guarantee you all of it is exactly that. The majority of it is happening below the surface.
0: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If you could travel back in time and change one famous historical event, where would you go and what would you attempt to change?
1: Can I. Can I monetize it? Sure. you know, um, like would I do the back to the future thing and go back in time and put a bunch of bets down and completely set my future up financially. I probably wouldn't have written this book had I done that. So <laughs> maybe I wouldn't want it. Maybe I wouldn't want to monetize it. Jeez, um, that is like a that is a, a tough question. I, uh, to be honest with you, like I, I, I wouldn't know how to change certain things. You know, this is like one of those sort of philosophical questions where you could be like, you know, do you go back and kill baby Hitler? Well, you know, he wasn't Hitler at the time. He's just a baby. And so, the, you know, are you a baby killer? Right. Like, right, right. You know, I don't I don't I don't you know, I I, I never know how to answer answer these uh, answer these questions. Um, but I will say this, that I I've uh, the, the question that I sort of think about, you know, most often is like, you know. If I had the chance to if if I had to, would I relive my worst memory or would I um, forget my best memory? And, um, you know, I could say that I would go back and want to spend more time with my dad or, you know, but I don't think I could change him dying because it was just such a long process for him. You know, right. He went through like I, there is no one day where I could say, hey, don't do this. Right. Like, so I don't have those sort of I don't have those kind of regrets with me um, in, my, mm-hmm. in my own in my own life. Um, But, uh, but I don't know what I would change, to be honest with you, because if I changed anything, and I screwed something up where I didn't get the kid that I have now, I would be devastated, you know, and I I don't know how I would live with that. Um, But as far as like, you know, would I go back and play more guitar. So maybe I would have had a better chance at being a rock star. Sure. Would I go back and and change some sort of like, you know, cultural thing or, 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 or affect the outcome of, of something that I didn't like the way that it turned out. Sure. Maybe I would do that too, but really, I don't know if I have the power to do anything like that. And I think that, I think that this is one of those questions where I I, I don't want to start looking at myself as having more power than I, than I actually do. So. uh,
0: so Okay. And by the way, I love asking that question, not because I want, the most brilliant, concise answer in the world, but because I love hearing people go through the process that you just went through and kind of come up with different yeah. insights that nobody else has. And, yeah, uh, I, I've,
1: I've never, I've never thought about, I've never really thought about that before. Like I've never, you know, uh, you know, my sort of, you know, place in, in, in the, in the world, whenever somebody asks me, you know, those questions, you know, if you could have a superpower, if you could go back in time, I'm like, listen, am I mm-hmm. allowed to make myself rich if I do this? Like, am I allowed to use my <laughs> powers for, for, you know, to, to make to make money on this? Because if that's the case, I'm going back one week and just playing different lottery numbers. <laughs> you know, like That's that's all that's all I'm doing. Right. That's
0: honest. It's honest. <laughs> um, I think we touched on this before, but what was your intention for writing this book?
1: Uh, I wanted to write a book, one about, um, about grief and, uh, dealing with grief because I I didn't deal with it in the best way, but I, I, I don't think a lot of, you know, young people, especially young men, um, deal with that. And I, and I wanted to be, have conversations, whether it is about, you know, anxiety or, or mental health or, um, body image. And I don't think a lot of, uh, there's not a lot out there for young men to deal with, with stuff like that. And, um, i write one thing in my book where after my dad died my my brother and i went to my mom's house to to clean out the closet and we had to go upstairs to Sort through all my dad's things and as I was walking up after my mom sent us up there I started to think, you know, hey, maybe there's something up there Maybe she knows something that we don't maybe before my dad died because he was dying for almost a year Maybe he wrote everything down, you know, maybe he wrote down all the answers to the questions that I haven't even asked yet You know, maybe he wrote down his philosophies about life Maybe he wrote us a letter and I was just hoping to just find something in an envelope or whatever that just said read this when I'm dead kind of thing, right? Yeah. And of course it didn't exist and he didn't do that. Um, but I sort of in in a, in a roundabout way wanted to do that for my own kid. And so this is that sort of package that I was hoping to find um, from my dad, you know, when my kid eventually one day does decide to read the book. Or maybe she won't read the book. But if she mm-hmm. does, then it is all sort of there for her.
0: Perfect. And a couple more questions. At this stage of the game, how do you define success?
1: Um, I'm in a position right now where the worst my day ever gets is I get to laugh. You know, and that's like, that's as bad as my day is, is that I get to laugh. Um, and, And I've... I've not chased money and I've not chased any sort of, you know, status or fame. And I haven't said, you know, ever that I love what I do or anything like that. Um, but I, I I surround myself with people who are incredibly talented and incredibly gifted. And um, in radio, when you do radio right, and you're truly successful, um, you don't become famous, you become family. And that is the thing that I think that I'm most proud of is this audience that we've built over the last 13 years on the radio show is just that it's uh, when I finish the show every day, I don't feel like you know, we're a show. I feel like with the audience that we're we're a family. So I think to me that's what success is.
0: What made you want to do? It's a morning show, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: okay. Yeah. So it's the Raz and mocha show. is it's uh, yeah. is it nationally syndicated throughout? It Canada? is.
1: Yeah, and a okay. podcast as well. Yeah.
0: okay, cool. And what made you so you're in the height of your TV career, what made you say, I've got to do a, a radio morning show?
1: Um, I finally had something to say, you know, to be honest with you. Catherine just got pregnant and I was sort of going through a transition in, you know, in in my in my own life um where I still hadn't fully grieved, you know, my, my dad dying. And I was just, you know, coming to the end of the, the, you know, the terms with, with all of that. And, and I finally had something to, I finally had something to say. And uh, a woman who really, really helped me out years before that, when my dad was dying, a woman named Julie Adam, who um, was my boss years ago, um, she came into my life at the exact right time and she was the exact right person that I needed. And she really like, in a lot of ways, she saved me. Um, And then years later, she was the one running the station when the station launched, and uh, and and we got a hold of each other, and she you know offered me the job, and so all of these years later, here she was again, you know, with this sort of fantastic opportunity at the right time. Just it was the, the exact right thing that uh, that I needed, and I had never really taken a, a chance on myself like this. I'd never hosted a radio show before, never. Right. You know, I'd, I'd produced a lot, I'd written a lot, but I'd never I'd never hosted a show before, um, and and I finally had something to say, you know, and I promised her that, and I was just like, hey, listen, you know, I'm. Gonna be a great storytelling and do great interviews and make people laugh but the best part is is that if this all if this doesn't work out and the show is terrible you can fire me because I already have a full-time job <laughs> like you don't even have to feel bad about firing me like you're gonna, fire me, you're gonna fire me and I'm gonna wake up the next day and just go and work for entertainment like, like it's just like I'm fine right um and uh and, and so so it was it was a lot of it was a lot of that I I just you know I was at a position of where I wanted to take a shot at myself
0: And my last question, which I ask everybody is what do you think you came into this life as Roz Weston to learn? And what do you think you came into this life to teach?
1: Um, I think that I, I think that I came in to learn, to listen. I think I'm, I'm, if i'm if I'm the most proud of any sort of skill that I have with all the different jobs that I've done, I think that i'm a I'm a great listener, and I think that that's the one skill that has helped me at the most in my career and listening to people doesn't necessarily mean you know hearing what they say you know i can I can listen to somebody you know, say nothing, you know, that they're just their body language or the way that they say something. And I know exactly what is going on. And, um, you know, one of the skills that I have is something I learned from sort of, you know, my, my fiance, which is, you know, you need to recognize when somebody needs a win and you have to help them. You have to help them out with that win and ask for nothing in return. And wow. because we're all just out here sort of, you know, doing our best. And that's the skill that she has. Like, it's, it's incredible. She knows exactly when somebody needs a win. Um, and so I think that that's sort of like my, that was my purpose uh, to, to learn. And as far as, you know, to teach,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, um, I would say that th- Having gone through, you know, trauma and, and, and grief and, and everything else, I think that the one thing that I didn't know at the time, but I learned the hard way is that you are built for this. You don't know it yet, mm-hmm. um, but we are built to withstand incredible grief and trauma and difficulty um, and adversary. We are, we're built for it and we don't know it, but we are incredibly tough. And I think that being tough is something that is um, shied away from, you know, um, especially encouraging somebody to be tough. I think that we're in a a sort of, you know, a more gentler world and and tough is seen as a, as a negative, you know, um, personal attribute, but I, I disagree with that. And I think that we need to encourage, you know, toughness as long as toughness comes with compassion and empathy.
0: Yeah, it's kind of, what as you were saying that what I was visualizing was a plane because I was once on a flight from Miami to LA and it was the worst turbulence I've ever experienced in my life and I was actually crying. Oh
1: <laughs> and the, God, and the, I'm so sorry. <laughs>
0: and the, the flight attendant came over and he's he's patting my hand and he's like, "Listen, these planes are made to withstand a hell of a lot more than this." Mm-hmm. And that and that was just what went through my head when uh, yeah. when you said that.
1: That's, that's exactly it. And you are made to withstand a hell of a lot more than that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for a great interview. And I was nervous because I'm like, I'm interviewing an interviewer.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. No, I'm i I'm like, I'll tell you that the crazy thing is that because I have done so many interviews before, you know, I have made sure, especially when, you know, when promoting this book to not do all the things in interviews that, you know, people have done to me that I hated. So I've been like, ask me anything. Like, let's just go, right? <laughs> um, the last thing I want to do is, uh, is, is be difficult for somebody. But no, thank you so much for having me. You were really, really wonderful. I really appreciate you.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And best of luck with the book and with your daughter thank and you. your fiance and everything it was a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So I hope you guys got a ton out of that conversation. I had so much fun talking with Roz. So remember, you can pick up his book, A Little Bit Broken, a memoir by Roz Weston. Follow him on Instagram, at Roz Weston if you're in the toronto area you can tune into his morning show it's the raz and mocha show it's on kiss 92.5 in toronto but i think it's also syndicated throughout canada follow me on instagram at the Allison kugel i always like to keep the posts really super cool for you guys it's a lot of interesting stuff and as anybody who knows me knows I really I love a sexy picture okay I can't lie I do <laughs> but you'll also see a lot of clips from my interviews as well so you can go to my Instagram at the Allison Kugel for both and I will catch you beautiful people on the next go around peace